Welcome to Failing Forward. Rachel, can you please introduce yourself to the audience today? Thank you, Emily. Um, Rachel Wolf, I'm the country director here in Nepal with CARE. And it's really great to talk to you today about what we're doing, what we're getting right, what we're figuring out when it comes to humanitarian response in Nepal. And why is it important for us to talk about things when they're not working? Well, I think when I, particularly when it comes to disaster response, we, all of us in the humanitarian community, we really have to take advantage of the space between the mega disasters. And Nepal is one of those contexts, you know, so affected by climate change, very vulnerable to small scale, mid-size, you know, smaller quakes, um, landslides, uh, floods, you name it. But thankfully, like most places, the catastrophic earthquakes don't, don't come all the time. And so, of course, since the 2015 earthquake, um, care and partners and government, we've learned uh, quite a bit uh, here in Nepal. And I really believe that flexing that muscle, learning together and improving our approaches, making sure they fit for uh, the communities that we're serving and our project participants, it's a great time to do it in between mega disasters. And talk a little bit more about the context you're operating in and what you're trying to solve for. Sure. So Nepal, again, very vulnerable, but at the same time, it's one of the most diverse countries in the world when it comes to geography. You've got mountains, you've got hills, you've got flatlands prone to flooding, every kind of topography you can imagine. And the people groups are incredibly diverse as well. 30 million people population and all. And yet, you know, the linguistic differences, ethnicities, background, religions, I mean, it's, it's incredibly rich. And so when it comes to preventing disasters, doing disaster risk response, uh, mobilizing communities to protect themselves, early warning systems, we have to take all of that into account. And what are some of the things that have gone wrong in the past? Well, I think Nepal is um, thankfully one of the contexts, certainly where I've, I've worked all over the world, but Nepal, I find, um, you know, the education system, there's room to grow, but there's quite um, a well-educated population. Um, there are, you know, very capable, um, proven national NGOs, local NGOs, the government we saw during COVID, um, did quite remarkably well, in my personal opinion, distributing vaccines and protecting its population. And so there's a lot of capacity. Um, I think what we need to do is those of us who work for the donor community, the UN, and certainly international NGOs, we need to continue to challenge ourselves to fully leverage the local leadership, the local voices, but do that in a way that we're empowering inclusive responses and preparations to disasters. That's the trick. So what are you working on now? Well, in Nepal, in the last couple of years, we've piloted the humanitarian partnership platform that started in the Philippines, not too far away. And learning from our care colleagues there, we thought, you know, this is something that could really work here in Nepal. Um, and it was really our own partners that came to us during COVID, four partners that we were already working together very closely, implementing other projects, you know, and they said, we're realizing through the COVID pandemic, 
just how important coordination is. We don't want to just receive money from organizations and talk to the government on our own. You know, here in this area of of Western Nepal, that's very prone to other disasters, we think we can work together. So we thought, okay, well, how do we harness this positive energy um, with these four fantastic partners? And of course, we have dozens of others. So that's really where it started. And we thought this humanitarian partnership platform or HPP model, could it work for, you know, our capable, very eager partners? And that's where the conversation started. And what are some of the things you're learning through that process? Well, um, we've had some successes, but we've also recognized new challenges as well as challenges that I think are, you know, chronic to the humanitarian um, architecture. Certainly here in Nepal, it's no exception. Um, and one thing is, as we all commit to localizing responses, localizing funding, empowering local actors, one of the things that I think we don't take into account nearly enough is that, especially in traditional societies, but frankly, in every society, um, local leadership actors, if we just take it at surf surface value, the men are in control. And so, you know, you can't blame the individual actors, but when we look at our humanitarian partners, they are in fact struggling to ensure that they have women representing on their local boards, that they have, you know, women staff um, in meaningful numbers at all, let alone at leadership level. And so that's something that when we when we partner with humanitarian local organizations and we look to do responses, it's a chronic struggle. Um, and of course, I've worked in contexts where it's an even greater struggle than Nepal. So, you know, I think as we as we push to localize, we have to make sure that the way we do that is putting the ultimate project participants, humanitarian beneficiaries at the center and say what works for them. Localization is about faster, more effective, more appropriate responses for them. So that's where we started grappling in this HPP pilot saying, okay, we've got capable, very willing, very eager humanitarian organizations, what more could we add to the mix to accelerate gender sensitive, gender transformative responses that put women and girls and their communities in the center of everything that we do? And how are you doing that? Well, I think one big win that we discovered with our partners, again, you know, the ideas are co-generated, co-designed, um, is that we said, hey, why don't we try not only adding humanitarian organizations to this platform and to this membership, what if we brought in some issue-based organizations, women, women's rights organizations, specific local partners that bring something else to the table. So, uh, you know, in the last several months, we've seen some real exciting early fruits on this. For example, um, CARE introduced to our humanitarian partners, um, our, our partner in the women's rights area. Um, one example is our human rights defenders um, that have chapters all over Nepal. 
Now, this is not an organization that engages in humanitarian response, but certainly they're very well aware of the vulnerabilities facing women, the risks of increased rates of gender-based violence when there are emergencies or other shocks. And so they were very happy to partner in the HPP family to say, we can provide training, um, a gender perspective, and we would love to learn from you, local humanitarian organizations, about, you know, what's really going on in the DRR space and the complexities. So it's this peer-to-peer -peer approach um, that is kind of localization at its best. Another great example is um, we have a long-term partner here in Nepal called FECOFON, which is the umbrella group of, of tens of thousands of community-based forest user groups. Nepal, of course, has beautiful forests, a precious environment, Feckle Fund is one group that's working to protect that through community members themselves, many of the leaders, women. So they said, hey, you know, we think we can contribute um, after flooding landslides when people are rebuilding their homes. They naturally want to use the local forest resources. Let's partner with you to make sure communities have access in a sustainable way that doesn't damage the forest, that educates them, links them with the local community user groups. And that's been a huge early success. One of the things that's so important in a conversation like this is understanding that as an organization like CARE, we have to cede power. Localization isn't going to be real if we say we're going to be in charge. How do you do that? What are some tips you have for others? Well, one of the things that we're doing differently, I think even from the Philippines, you know, that pioneered this, is we're actually the partners are creating a secretariat level where they are representing themselves. So CARE, you know, certainly facilitated, brought folks together, offers training, but this is their platform. And they're very ambitious. It's very exciting. They want to create an emergency pooled fund at the secretariat level. And they are already telling us, we foresee that there would be some small localized responses where we as HPP members could self-fund the response. Even more exciting they're already working to link with the private sector in their coverage areas to leverage those resources during times of disasters. And then finally, you know, as they've articulated their needs, their ambitions of how their response and their service to their community is going to change through the HPP partnership, they're saying, you know, what, what really gets us excited is being able to advocate together to the government to help the government coordinate better and be more inclusive. We feel empowered now that we can partner with the government and bring more women to the table, people with disabilities, you know, marginalized groups that don't always participate. And so again, seeing how just a little bit of facilitation, bringing them together, giving them a space, you know, training where it's relevant, helping them uh, capacitate and inspire each other. And most of all, coordinate and bring their efforts together is even going to shape how responses are done in their local areas. What has surprised you and your team so far? I think it's, it's that speed of how quickly they're thinking about what's next, what's next. We've seen even in the short time that we've convened and worked with these partners in the HPP um, that, you know, from annual flooding responses, to certainly during the COVID crisis, particularly during Delta, how quickly they could move. And 
you know, I think CARE's biggest value add is to say, because we have established partners, because we have this mechanism, we can be a bit more flexible. You know, we can pre-position a little bit of funds with you and even um, non-food items for you to distribute. It's a little bit goes so far and it's highly empowering. But how quickly these partners have moved from, we want to respond better, we want to respond faster, we want to be more gender inclusive, to now saying, we're drafting a joint advocacy framework. We want, you know, we, we are very ambitious about influencing um, and shaping how the government steers the response in this entire geographic area. I mean, it's, it's absolutely exceeded my expectations, certainly. And I think demonstrates that local actors, you know, when they are given the tools, when they are convened and when they are unleashed and empowered, they they will go beyond where where we initially imagine. And it's very exciting because we're just getting started. What's an example of that going beyond what we initially imagined? Today we're talking about advocacy um, and and even they're forming their own committee to create operational guidelines. Um, but I think, you know, tomorrow what we're going to see is that these leaders are going to help the government's humanitarian structures themselves, um, localize them, make them more inclusive. I think we're going to see, fingers crossed, but eventually there, there will be probably another large-scale disaster in Nepal. And, and we have the potential to see a much more gender-inclusive, um, a much more community-inclusive response, not only by local actors like HPP members, but by the government themselves. And what are some things we had to change about ourselves and about our own ways of working in order to make that possible? The Nepal care team you know, as an outsider that's only been here three years, I found their mindset to be incredibly progressive. And that's probably because they are all Nepalis themselves and have come up through, uh, you know, Nepali CSOs and some have worked for the government. So they understand that when they meet other local leaders, they very quickly grasp and understand the capacity of these leaders and the organizations. But we've also advocated um, pretty aggressively with headquarters and finance teams. So Care Nepal is participating very actively in the partnership, the wider partnership uh, dialogue and working groups that Care is engaging in globally. So we have a voice to say, you know, compliance is critical, of course, and you know, even if it's one dollar from whatever source it comes from, if we are granting that or distributing that, we are accountable. But there are ways to simplify the paperwork, to make it faster. There are ways to put more power and more voice into um, our partners uh, to get better results because we're equally accountable for impact, not just to make sure all the receipts are saved for seven years in triplicate, right? So balancing that accountability to impact, our accountability to the end beneficiary with, of course, the fact that compliance um, and other issues remain paramount. And then partnering. You know, I've part of what I have been thinking about lately with my team is power will always exist. There are power differentials in every relationship everywhere. Ignoring that or trying to dismiss it doesn't solve the problem. So what we need to do and what we've really been leaning into here in Nepal is 
we tell the truth with our partners on what the power dynamic is and why. For example, if we're partnering with, let's say, one of our HPP partners on a USAID or other institutional funded um, program, and CARE is the fund recipient, and we are subgranting that to a partner, the compliance, um, the requirements that we pass on to them is going to look very, very different than if it's a very flexible funding from, let's say, a private source. Of course, the same fraud controls, the same accountability, but the paperwork, the requirements will look quite different. So we need to explain that, um, tell them why. That's part of how we help build them up. So someday, understanding the complexities and the rigors of different donors, they will be able to apply directly for funding and make a bigger impact at a larger budget level. I think sometimes, you know, we try to have equal relationships without taking those realities into account. Or we apply a one-size-fits-all approach, whether the money is coming from um, flexible funding or from one of the more rigorous donors um, in our community. And that's, that's not right. That's not necessary. And it's very inefficient. Uh, and I think even as we are um, distributing funds that do have particularly rigorous reporting requirements attached, the mutual respect um, and clear communication is very important. So we can't lose sight of that either. And if you could do it all over again from the beginning, knowing what you know now, what would you change? I don't know. I might not change a lot. I think starting small with just a handful of organizations where, again, we already had that relationship. We knew each other organizationally. We knew each other individually as leaders where there was respect and a track record. That was a win. And circumstances were such, this was just luck that, um, or bad luck, as it were, that we did have, you know, some emergency responses where we were able to test and learn along the way. Taking full advantage of those learnings and those opportunities uh, to, to, you know, obviously have a meaningful, a high quality response, but at the same time, learn and grow together along the way. That's been very helpful. I wish I could snap my fingers and help this humanitarian partnership platform cover all of Nepal as it does in Philippines. I mean, truly, our team is so inspired by the nationwide coverage that, that CARE Philippines and its partners have been able to achieve through the HPP model. We very much think that's possible in Nepal. And I think it's, it's going to take time, a lot of hard work, willingness to fail and reflect, fail again, try things new. But, you know, based on the members, their attitudes, they're so flexible. They're so open with each other and with us. I think we do have all the right ingredients to expand quickly, learn along the way, and then bring others into um, what we're trying to do and, and, you know, maximize the learnings across the Nepal DRR and humanitarian community. If you could give one piece of advice to somebody who was setting out on a similar journey in order to maximize impact, because you said we have to be accountable for impact, what would that one piece of advice be? I would say bring women to the table. We have to bring women to the table. I mean, e even the last, we had an incredible time together. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was with the Humanitarian Partnership Platform Partners. And um, there were lots of amazing women in the room. But again, the men were presenting most of the time. And I said, guys, 
we won't change this until the men sit down and say, you know what, maybe I am the better presenter or I've been part of this longer, but for the good of the people we serve, we need to model this and it starts with us. So, you know, ladies get up here and it doesn't have to be perfect, but let's, let's start with ourselves. Um, and that was very well received, which again, tells you just how amazing these partners are, how, how humble they are, how willing to learn they are. But I do think, you know, empowering local actors, expanding humanitarian capacity, especially in countries like Nepal, where, where the risks and shocks are almost constant, at least on a small scale, and larger scale disasters will eventually come. We have to bring women to the forefront, particularly women from marginalized communities. And it's going to be messy and it's going to be imperfect and it's going to be awkward because the men are used to talking and the men have 20% better presentation prepared and we have to be willing to be awkward together and fail together. And that's what the HPP is already willing to do. So I'm very excited about, you know, how we're going to progress. Uh, but ultimately, even seeing something that radically different from the HPP community, that's what's going to make the government notice. That's what's going to make local community members notice. And we can really move the needle in terms of are people with disabilities speaking? Are the marginalized members speaking? Are youth speaking? Um, if, we, if we don't start with us, we'll never move that needle. Is there anything you would like to say to the audience that I haven't given you a chance to say yet? Yeah, great question. I, I get so excited about these things. I think, um, again, going back to power issues, telling the truth in respect, telling the truth in love with our own colleagues, with our partners, with the communities. I don't see that as often as I would like, but I, I have felt it very powerfully when others have done that for me. And I have seen how it can really open doors and make change faster. We should not shy away from hard truths. International NGOs have a different role than national NGOs. Government has a different role than community-based organizations. We should acknowledge that. We should talk about that. What's working, what's not working. Um, but I don't think we should apologize for being who we are or try to avoid the tough topics. Um, you know, when I was able to address the gender issue with our HPP partners, even on a small thing like presenting where we are with the platform. That gave me so much hope because when we can, sh they received it in the respect and, you know, the care that I have for them as organizations and individuals, and we moved on and we started making change. So if we can do that for each other, um, I think we'll see transformation a lot faster. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Emily.